Well, I love history. I always have. I think it's partly due to the fact in the, maybe the early 90s, the Sherman family, we got real big boy cable. You know, we, it was our first exposure to the History Channel, otherwise known as the Hitler Channel. That's what that big block H in the bottom of the screen actually stands for. Uh, my dad, he, he loves war history, primarily World War II and the American Civil War. So he and I would watch the History Channel several nights a week together. He's a big fan of a World War II historian named Stephen Ambrose. So in the eighth grade, when I didn't have anything to read and I was bored, maybe a Christmas, Christmas break or something, I stole a book off my dad's shelf called Citizen Soldiers. It's a, about how the American army that won World War II is primarily made up of just everyday citizens, teachers, salesmen, industrial workers. These all became uh, incredible warriors. And from that time in the eighth grade all the way back all the way through high school and college into now, I've pretty much just always had a, a book of history on the side. Uh, I love it. So why do people who love history love history? I think oftentimes because true stories are the best stories. We have a phrase for this, right? Stranger than fiction. These are amazing, good stories. I think some of you who don't enjoy history just haven't had the right storyteller. Uh, and some of the most compelling stories of all time take place in this book that we are going through, First and Second Samuel. You have David and Goliath, a story that's been repackaged and repurposed thousands of times since its original happening and telling. David and Bathsheba, another story that's been repackaged and retold in so many different ways. These are good and compelling stories of narrative. I think we should also love history, though, because it gives us a better understanding of today, of our present. We can't understand these present days of 2015, of financial and political uncertainty, unless we understand the 90s, the incredible economic explosion and optimism that came with the 90s. And we can't really understand the optimism of the, optimism of the 90s unless we understand the Cold War pessimism of the 70s and 80s, which preceded them. We can't understand the 70s and 80s unless we understand the unbelievable cultural turbulence of the, of the 1960s and on and on. We can't understand World War II unless we understand World War I. The books of historical narrative in our Old Testament are important in this regard. We not only learn things that are true of God in ourselves, but we are able to see that our God isn't just a God of propositional theological truth but that he's actually entered into and acted in history. And just as he's still acting, we can place ourselves further down the line in the same story, the story of redemptive history, of how God has entered in and is working throughout history. We can't understand ourselves unless we first rightly understand Jesus. And we can't rightly understand Jesus unless we first rightly understand David. We can't understand David unless we understand Saul and Samuel, and Joshua, and Moses, and Abraham, and Adam. So a year and a half ago, Ryan began to show us the historical and coming kingdom of David was in many ways similar to the coming kingdom of Christ. We saw this last week in 2 Samuel 3 and 4 also. Throughout 1 Samuel, though, and through last week, the kingdom of David has always been forward-looking, expectant that it's coming in the future. But now we are here in the present, in 2 Samuel 5. David's kingdom isn't something in the future that may or may not happen. It's here. 
That present kingdom will have major implications for the rest of the Old Testament and major implications for the coming kingdom of Christ. So let's see the kingdom of God through David played out this morning in three major parts this morning. A new shepherd, a new city, and a new conquest. There's a lot of new things happening in this chapter. This is a, a major turning point in our Bibles. So we need to know it. Let's go through it. Our first five verses, a new shepherd. We find out from verse five that David has been ruling as king over the tribe of Judah for the last seven and a half years. Last week, we saw many of these major events played out in chapters three and four. We saw in those chapters, the book close on the house of Saul. It's over. The transfer of the kingdom has come from the house of Saul and it has been given to David. Remember, David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. With no more heirs to Saul's throne and at Abner's encouragement to the remaining tribes uh, before Abner's death, these tribes of Israel are finally ready to place themselves under David's throne. Verse 1 tells us that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, not all of Israel, we're talking several million people that would have had to come to to Hebron, but we learn in verse 3 that these are the representative elders of the remaining 11 tribes that come to David. And they tell him, we are your bone and flesh. That's an interesting thing to say. Uh, Perhaps there's some Adam and Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh excitement to like, we're ready and excited to be married to you, King David in some sense. Perhaps they're referencing Deuteronomy 17, which lays out the qualifications for a king of Israel. And one of those qualifications to be king is that the man must actually be an Israelite, similar to the necessity of our laws of, if you would like to be president, you must be a naturally born U.S. citizen. This is why Arnold Schwarzenegger can never run for president. Maybe praise God. Uh, They could be saying here that you are actually qualified, David, to be our king. You're one of us. But perhaps most likely, they're saying, we are your body. It's interesting that they don't say, you are our bone and flesh, but rather, we are your bone and flesh. You are our head And we will act in any way that you seem fit for us as your body. Perhaps Paul is picking up on this very thing in Ephesians 4. That we are to grow up into the head who is Christ. Who we, the whole body, are joined to as his bone and flesh. Use us, David, however you see fit. And why are they willing to make such a vow of allegiance? Such a place of saying, use us however you'd like. Because, they say, you've really been our king all along. You led out. You brought in, meaning in battle. You let us out. You saved us. While Saul had the title, you were doing the work. And then, like Abner, they admit they knew that God had promised the the kingdom to David anyway. They were just ignoring it. This is like Abner coming to David last week, just on a national level. This is national repentance here in the first few verses of chapter 5. In our selfishness, David, we we had our fingers in our ears and we were ignoring God's promises to you and your kingdom. You were king all along. We just kind of defiantly ignored it. We weren't recognizing your kingdom. I'm reminded 
that when we become Christians, we don't invite Jesus to become king over our life. He already is. Jesus is now reigning as king and Lord over all creation, over sinners all over the world. Those who become his people finally just recognize their right place under his authority. So Jesus is your king, whether you recognize it or not. The question is, will you recognize it? His actual and historical resurrection proves his kingship over you and his kingship over the cosmos. Will you come to him and recognize his authority over you as these elders of Israel do? But let's look again at what they say. Something interesting. They quote God in saying something that we actually don't have previously recorded. In the second half of verse 2 there, they say, And the Lord said to you, You shall be my shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. They're either quoting something, perhaps an unrecorded prophetic message, maybe from Samuel that happened previously in David's life. Uh, we just don't have that, what is in quotes from God earlier in 1 Samuel, or more likely, they're giving a summary statement of all of God's promises to David. And they speak well, perhaps better than they even know. They say that David will be shepherd of the people. Now, shepherd is just an absolutely loaded Bible word. Immediately in David's context, we think of David's own boyhood vocation, he was a literal shepherd for many years of his life. Now it is no longer sheep that he is guiding, that he is providing for, that he's protecting, but he's now doing all of that, not for sheep, but for God's people. So perhaps we think of David's boyhood when we think of them saying, be our shepherd. About 500 years before David, Jacob had spoken of the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And then David later in his own life picks up the theme of God as shepherd famously in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Shepherd continues to play itself out. In Numbers 27, we see remarkably similar language from what we just heard the elders tell, tell David. Moses, in, New, in Numbers 27, he realizes he's on his, his way out. He's very old and will not go with the people into the land. So he's commissioning Joshua as the new leader of Israel. And he asks God to appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. Sound familiar? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Same language. The people are now saying to David, be our new Joshua. Lead us. But of course, the image that when we see or read this word of shepherd, perhaps the image that most easily comes to mind is that of Jesus, the good shepherd. Right in the thick of so much David imagery of the first couple chapters of Matthew, the wise men, they come to Herod and they combine some prophecies in the book of Micah. And they include these words from 2 Samuel 5, from the lips of these elders, they tell Herod of the coming ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus lovely, loved and rightly observed the people of his day that they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep 
without a shepherd. There's a whole lot going on in the Bible anytime you see this word shepherd. But this one here is especially poignant in that it is looking both backward and forward. The elders have already told David that we're your body, David. Do with us as you please. And now in humility, they're telling him that they are his sheep. We need you to lead us. Lead us. Israel finally finds peace amongst themselves internally. And they finally find peace, as we'll see, with their enemies externally when they stopped trying to shepherd themselves and actually began to follow the shepherd whom God had given. Of course, David is nearly always launching us forward to his greater son, Jesus. So the question that becomes for us as we read through these first few verses is, do we come to Jesus with the same kind of humility and repentance that these men here are showing? Do we think of Jesus as a shepherd? Sure, if I gave you a blank sheet of paper and asked you to give me 10 roles or titles for Jesus, shepherd might make the list pretty quickly. So we know this theologically, but do we actually trust and follow Jesus implicitly with our very lives? Do we think of him as a protector and leader Or is he more often in our lives just a guy with some occasional good advice or perhaps even someone who will make our wildest dreams come true? Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. That's a good prayer that we just sang. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. Keep thy flock, us, your church, from sin. Defend us. Seek us when we go astray. Perhaps this is a good song this week that you can go back and find these lyrics and think and pray through more slowly and thoughtfully. David has been a shepherd for nearly his entire life, and now Israel is asking him to shepherd them. There's a major transition happening here. So after this, David makes a covenant with the people. Notice, not the other way around. He is setting the parameters for the covenant, and he is anointed king over the entire nation. David has been God's anointed man for a long time. And finally, finally, after perhaps 23 years or so since that day in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel anointed him in Bethlehem, David is anointed king over all of Israel. He's trusted in God's promises. He has blamelessly and righteously waited to receive the kingdom when he could have taken it much earlier. He has patiently waited from that day in Bethlehem until now when he's now moving to Jerusalem. Life in David's kingdom has begun. And for the following five and a half chapters, we'll we'll look at these chapters for the next couple of months, life is good. Life is good and full of blessing in the kingdom under David, which now gets us to our second point, the real beginning of one of the major themes of the Bible, and that is of Jerusalem, a new city. Jerusalem, well, while this city is referenced over 800 times in the Bible, my guess is you just kind of didn't really think about it when you saw this because you know that city and you know that name really well. Well, 
up until 2 Samuel 5, it really hasn't carried that much significance in the Bible. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek, the, the priest king of Salem, or Jerusalem, came out to meet Abraham and to receive a tithe from him. But that's basically it. Jerusalem really hasn't been that significant. It was a well-known and a well-fortified city. The Egyptians referred to Jerusalem hundreds of years prior to David. The Canaanites referred to it as Jebus in Joshua and in Judges. So it's a well-known city, but it's a well-known city that's plopped right down in the middle of Israel. We're told in verse 6 that David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which is an interesting thing to say. Why not the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the city? Well, perhaps Joshua should already be on our mind from the whole leading them out and bringing them in as a shepherd, that language of the elders. The inhabitants of the land were those that Israel was commanded to drive out of the land in Joshua's conquest. But we find out here in 2 Samuel 5, there are still some there. Before the time of Joshua, God had promised to Abraham a land for his people to live in, the promised land, a land to dwell in God's presence. And by living in right relationship with him, they were meant to be a blessing to all of the nations of the world. The people, led by Joshua, were to drive out the inhabitants of the land so that the land would be a place only for people who are in right covenant with God. Only they didn't do it fully. There were still inhabitants in the land. So David, as the new Joshua, comes to Jerusalem to drive them out. Only the Jebusites, like Goliath, aren't too worried about this little shepherd boy, David. They're confident in their size. They're confident in the undefeated record of their walls. So they taunt David by saying that their walls are so strong that all that they would possibly need to fight off David and his army are just a couple of blind and lame men. Now, we don't really know how David defeated the Jebusites and what is meant by his command to his men in verse 8, that whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Most think that either two options, either David and his men uh, got upstream and cut off all of the water supply flowing into Jerusalem, so they basically thirsted out the Jebusites, they besieged the city, or they navy sealed themselves in through the underground water shaft, which is still there, and got in through the city and took it from the inside. We don't, either way, David then calls, once he has the city, he calls the Jebusites, these inhabitants of the land, he calls them the lame and the blind. He's taken the phrase that they've used to taunt him, that only the lame and blind would be needed, and now David calls all of the Jebusites the lame and the blind. He says, the lame and the blind shall not come into the house. Now we know that David isn't just prejudiced against people who can't, who can't see or can't walk because we'll see in just a few short chapters of David's kindness towards lame Mephibosheth and of his actually welcoming him into his house. But David says that these Jebusites are not to be considered of the people because of their Goliath-like defiance of God's shepherd. 
and therefore of God himself. We find out that David takes the strongest part of the city, called Zion. This is the first time that we see this word in the Bible. It's, it's the, the, the stronghold, perhaps the citadel, the strongest part where the king or those most important people in the city could retreat to in times of attack. Zion, a word that will become synonymous with Jerusalem itself. And we find out that Jerusalem now, from this point forward, will have another nickname, the City of David. We can't stress how important these few short descriptive verses are in the entire scope of the Bible. There are huge things happening right now. One theologian says, the big story in the book of Samuel is the transition from tabernacle to temple. Over the course of the Samuel narrative, Israel has moved from having a tabernacle to a temple, from Shiloh as the center of worship to Jerusalem as the center of worship, and the place where the temple would be built. Israel had also moved from having judges to a king. Well, we haven't yet gotten to the temple, and we won't actually in David's life, uh, nor will we get to Jerusalem as the center of worship until next week in chapter 6. It's happening. Transition is happening. The taking of Jerusalem and its establishment as the city of David is a major, major turning point in the Bible. There is now a fixed and centralized place for God's dwelling with his people. No more tents. No more moving around. It's here now in Jerusalem. God is moving toward his people in a new way through David. From this point forward in the Old Testament, Jerusalem Zion is the hot spot of God's presence in the world, the epicenter from which God's glory and blessing explode to the far reaches of the world, to the nations. The nations were to come to this hot spot and to see of God's glory, his goodness, his grace. So Jerusalem becomes synonymous with Israel's well-being, with God's dwelling with them. When Jerusalem is doing well, more often than not, Israel is doing well. God is dwelling with them. So, in Matthew 21, when God's presence re-enters Jerusalem, this time riding on a colt, it's no surprise that the people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. The city of David, it's here. King David is back. God is finally dwelling with us again. And then again, to continue from last week, verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Just as we saw last week, the kingdom is growing bigger and stronger. The Lord was with him. This is something that we've seen described of David at least five times through, the, through 1 Samuel, and we've seen it explicitly explained there, but we've just observed that the Lord is with him countless other times. And not just the Lord, Yahweh, his proper name, but a descriptive title, the God of hosts, the God who commands all of the heavenly powers, the God of the cosmos. He is the one who fights for David. David is king and his kingdom is growing stronger because the Lord was with him and the Lord was fighting for him. He always had, he'd always fought for him in his youth against lions and bears, against a Philistine giant, against a maniac rival king. 
and this time against defiant Jebusites. He's fought for him, and he is fighting for him. God is faithful to David, not just in getting him to the throne, but now he is faithful to him on the throne. And part of his becoming greater is that the neighboring nations are observing his kingdom from the outside, saying, what is going on down there? Actually, we'd kind of like to be a part of that. In verse 11, the nations are coming to Jerusalem to build him a house. And presumably, they're hearing of God's goodness as they work amongst God's people. And through all this, verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Since his anointing, David has seen and experienced some stuff that might have caused him to doubt. To doubt whether this kingdom that God had promised was actually going to happen. On the run, in the wilderness, from Saul, David has written some pretty emotional psalms that we can read. Songs that he's writing to God, asking, Oh Lord, how long? Is this really going to happen? The promises that you made, is it really going to happen? Well, now, in verse 12, he sits down on his throne and exhales. He is finally able to rest in the realized promises of God. He knows now. He knew that this was the Lord's doing, not for David's own sake, but for the sake of the people. And yet, despite his faith in God, the narrator doesn't want us to forget about the brewing storm underneath the surface of this shepherd king. Verse 13, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Oh no. We're reminded right away that we still need a better king because this one has problems. Like last week, this should set off warning sirens in our heads because we know from Deuteronomy 7, 17 that any king of Israel must not acquire many wives for himself. He's keeping up the same pattern that he began in Hebron, now here in Jerusalem. In this chapter, the narrator takes the regular formula of listing wives and concubines and seems to switch them on purpose to highlight he's taking concubines and wives. What is he doing? These blind spots of indifference that will ultimately bring the downfall of his entire kingdom. But that's not the emphasis here. We've, we've got several more months to consider David's blind spots of indifference. But this is just a quick and subtle reminder to us to not put too much hope in this king even in the midst of the rest of the chapter, which is extraordinary blessing, extraordinary faith in God, this still isn't the one. So our historian narrator keeps the story moving into the last third of the chapter. We've already seen David portrayed as a new and better Joshua, so it's only fitting that he finish the conquest, a new conquest. If David's coronation was great news for Israel, it was terrible news for her enemies. And one of her oldest enemies, the Philistines, has been off stage for many, many years now. We haven't seen them in a while. They seem to have been content to allow David to have his cute little kingdom down there in Judah, as long as that's all it was. 
but a united Israel with a central and extremely well-defended capital city is something altogether different. David is now a huge threat. He is now a world power, not just a little regional king. So they gather an army and go meet Israel. And when David hears of their coming, we read in verse 19, he inquired of the Lord. David asked, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. The narrator doesn't tell us how David hears of this from God. That's not the emphasis here. So we probably shouldn't expect God to answer so uh, directly when we ask him a question such as this. Uh, But the emphasis seems to be that David asked at all. David is asking God in ways in which Saul very rarely did. Or that when Saul actually did inquire of God, God was largely silent to him. We have a shepherd king here who is actually following the Lord, his shepherd. God is leading him, and David is following. And sure enough, at following the Lord, David f- defeats the Philistines. The Lord of hosts is with him. And in an ironic reversal of the Philistines who defeated Israel's army in 1 Samuel 4, and they carried off the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll see make a dramatic return next week in 2 Samuel 6. In a reversal, in verse 21, the Philistines left their idols and David and his men carried them off. The inhabitants of the land are finally and fully being driven out, and their gods are worthless. The God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is dwelling over his people, and the kingdom of the land is here. But these inhabitants, they won't go down without swinging. The Philistines muster up one last army. This is Custer's last stubborn stand. And nearly identically, David inquires of the Lord... Only this time, God seems to say, all right, that's enough. David, this time, I got it. Sneak around their army, and then in verse 24, when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines, the Lord of hosts. The host, the angelic hosts who seem to be marching through the trees. When you hear that, Then you can come out, David. We have no idea what's happening in this second battle, but the Lord goes out before David, and it appears that all David has to do is just come in and clean up the mess. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to devote to the often difficult question of how a God of love could commit his people to the destruction and killing of large groups of people. Perhaps a good place to start is Ryan's sermon in 1 Samuel 14 and 15 of Samuel's dealing with the Amalekites. We'd also be happy to recommend some other resources to you or to talk through this with you. But for now, what's important for us to consider is that we need to understand where we are in the history of God's story. Despite our tendency to make applications from Israel's army to the army of the United States, we just can't do it any longer. What's important for us to understand is that in these texts is that it is God who fights for his people. He is the one who goes out and secures the battle. Yes, each day is a battle for us. We fight against our flesh daily. 
against Satan and spiritual forces. Remember, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Today is a, is a battle against our flesh. But we can fight today because the battle, the war, is already won. For those who are trusting him, Jesus has defeated sin and death on the cross. He has died for his enemies to bring them into his peace. So Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are no longer Amalekites and Philistines. We no longer wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against Satan and his spiritual forces. We fight against him, not with sword or spear, but we fight with faith and with hope and with love and the power of the gospel spoken into people's lives. The kingdom of Christ is no longer a come and see. If you happen to come into Israel and happen to observe of God's glory and goodness, it's no longer come and see, but the kingdom of Christ is now go and tell. We go out fighting no longer against flesh and blood, but with the power of the gospel for those who would believe that the Lord of hosts might fight for them and for us to bring victory to bring deliverance, to bring salvation. The conquest of Joshua and of David, the new Joshua, was always pointing us in this direction, where the kingdom of God would no longer be about a regional strip of land with physical borders, but of the entire cosmos. God, the one who is always fighting on behalf of his people. Okay, so the kingdom of God, through David, is kicking into high gear. And the blessings of God, to and through his people, are in full effect in 2 Samuel 5. But let me ask you a little review question here. When did David become king? It's kind of difficult to answer, right? We could say right here, when he's finally coronated over all 12 tribes, what we just read. But could we also say, was it, was it when Saul died? Was it, was it when all of Saul's available heirs died? Now is David the king because he doesn't have rivals? I think we could say that. Could we also say that he became king way back in Bethlehem at his dad's house? When Samuel shows up and anoints him and makes all of these wild promises to him, God's promises are sure. They're inevitable. He will become king. So we might say, yeah, he became king then in Bethlehem. Let me ask you another question for all of you other fellow lovers of world history. When did the Allies win World War II? If we asked a bunch of historians this, we'd probably get plenty of different answers. Maybe we could say May 8th, 1945, VE, Victory in Europe Day. The inevitable was coming. Or we might say August 15th, 1945, Victory in Japan Day, the final and full surrender. I'm tempted to say, though, that the Allies won the war on June 6th, 1944, a good year before the full surrender. They won the war on D-Day. Once they established the beachhead at Normandy, got some tanks on, onto the beach, they got a place to set up shop and 
uh, began their offensive against the Germans, it was over. That's why so much planning and flawless execution had to happen for the invasion. That's why the Allies spent so much time and energy convincing the Germans that they would invade elsewhere. If this invasion failed, the war would likely fail. So I can say that D-Day was the day that the Allies won the war because I know of what happened after that. The thing is, is almost 250,000 Americans alone died in Europe after D-Day. So their families certainly wouldn't say the war was won on D-Day, would they? The guys freezing their feet off in the Battle of the Bulge six months after D-Day, they wouldn't have said that the war was over on D-Day. They had to go through all of that. There would have been days and weeks and months of uncertainty. Will we win? I don't know. It sure doesn't look like it today. But we can look back and say, yeah, yeah, the Allies won the war on D-Day. Even though Samuel anointed David in Bethlehem in 1 Samuel 16, David spent many, many days, many years on the run, in the wilderness. It sure didn't look like in those days that he was going to become king. As war raged on for years and years against the house of Saul, David had to wonder, is it really true? Did I just imagine that day at dad's house when Samuel showed up? Did he really make those promises? It sure doesn't feel like it. But on this side of history, knowing the end of the story, we could travel back in time, perhaps in a telephone booth time machine, and show up to David, whisper to him, I know the end, brother. You're gonna win. God will give you the kingdom. Keep fighting. Just like if I had a time machine, I could show up on a December night in the Ardennes forest and tell the Allied soldiers what I know of the end of the war. That would be encouraging, right? The battle is won. The, the war is won. Though you, though you keep fighting today, the war will ultimately be won. Keep fighting. Even though you're freezing your feet off, even though your brothers and your friends right next to you keep dying, keep fighting. You will win. Well, remember, we're not David in this story. David is pointing us more often than not to his greater son, Jesus, who experienced his own battle of the bulge moments of temptation in the wilderness, of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we might say that Jesus won the war uh, in that same city that David was initially anointed in, in Bethlehem. When Jesus was born in a stable, God established the beachhead. The war was won. I know if we're really theologically precise, it was really over in the Garden of Eden when God first promised to crush the snake or really for all eternity past because God cannot lose. But stay with me. Even though the battle was won, the war was won in Bethlehem, Jesus actually did have to live a life of perfect worship, of perfect delight in the Father, so that he might give that righteousness to those who would trust him. He actually did have to go to a bloody and gruesome substitutionary death so that he might, for those who would place themselves under him, Absorb the just wrath of the Father against their sin. But then there's this really strange tension that happens throughout the rest of the New Testament. After Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension, perhaps you've heard us use this language. 
of the already, but not yet. And that is that Jesus has already accomplished so much of his kingdom, but not yet all of it. There's some aspects that are not yet completed, are not yet fulfilled. Jesus has already won the war and defeated the power of Satan, but he's not yet fully destroyed him. He prowls about like a roaring lion. The church is already a community of redeemed sinners, but we are not yet fully redeemed, much to our frustration. The kingdom of God is already here in our presence, but we do not yet fully experience all of its benefits. We are right in the middle of the battle of the bulge, people. The kingdom of God is here. The war is won, but the battle rages on. However, Jesus warned his disciples, even before his death and resurrection, to keep waiting, to keep trusting, to keep fighting. It's going to be hard. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be death for many of you. Persevere. The difficulty will come, and it will tempt you to consider to give up. Don't. By faith in Christ, you are freed from the penalty and power of sin, but you aren't yet free from its presence. Don't give up. But as a time traveler in the Arden Forest, the Holy Spirit comes to us in times of difficulty, in times of despair. The Holy Spirit comes to us and whispers, don't give up. The war is won, though the battle rages on. The kingdom is here. Trust in my promises. Don't give up. Keep fighting. The war is won. Keep fighting. So while the kingdom is here and it is inaugurated or begun at Jesus' first coming, it's not yet fully consummated. It's not yet fully completed or fulfilled until his second coming. Jerusalem was a forward-looking expectation for David. And Jerusalem is a forward-looking expectation for us as well. It's almost as if we are soldiers in David's army before he is crowned and coronated in Jerusalem. Following our anointed king, we know of the promises made to him, but still in the wilderness. We trust him, but the new Jerusalem is not yet here, not yet fully. But if David and his men could have just seen just a snapshot, just a picture of David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, what hope would that have given them? He's going to win. He's going to take his throne. It's going to happen. Just like if I could show up with like a little handheld TV and show the soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge in their foxholes just 10 seconds of a ticker tape parade in New York. It's coming in just a few months. Hang in there. You're going to win. What hope would that be? Well, guess what? We have a video of the ticker tape parade for us in the Bible. And it comes in John's revelation of Revelation 21. This is it. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to win. He writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the ticker tape parade, the victory parade. Jerusalem was never meant to point us to a geographic place on a map. Not then and not now. The temporal and physical city of David was always meant to point us forward to the eternal and spiritual city of Christ, which is coming and is our hope. And just as all those wandering and pilgriming Old Testament saints longed for a city which they would never see, the author of Hebrews tells us that we long to come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, a heavenly Jerusalem. For those in Christ, there will be a day where we are no longer pilgrims without homes. For right now, we can be okay with life without full and complete rest in the not yet. We can be content to follow our king, even even though not yet fully satisfied, because he is with us. But there's a coming time, Zion, when all things will be made new, will be made right, where we get God we get his presence. We get completed and fully satisfied joy, which we longed for and tried to get in so many other things for 80 or 90 years in this life. No more worry, no more pain, no more, worry, no more war or starvation, no more dying children, no more anxiety, no more half-hearted love, and misplaced worship. Like Fledge, the flying horse in the last battle, when he arrives in Aslan's country, we will surely say, like him, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. This is our hope. The war is won, though the battle rages on, and the king is surely coming. We're about to sing, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We'll say that for eternity, of the great things he has done and how he has fought for us. We will feast and weep no more. I hope and pray that when we sing that in a moment, we'll sing it more meaningfully and more expectantly hopeful in the new Jerusalem, in Zion. The question, though, is, is this your hope? Will the return of Christ be a day of joy for you? A day of hopes met? Or a day of dread? We pray that you would trust the shepherd king in his life and death for sinners. If you, if you have questions about him, about the gospel that he brings how he saves sinners from judgment and wrath. Please come talk to me or anybody up at, up at the front here. We'd love to talk through these things and pray with you. For the rest of you, I pray that the coming new Jerusalem and its king, for the knowledge that we have, for the vision of the ticker tape victory parade that we have in God's word to us, I pray that that vision would be all the excitement and energy you need this week 
to love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and all the excitement and energy that you need to consider others more important than yourself and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is our hope. The new Jerusalem coming down to us that God might dwell with us, making all things new and right. Let's ask for God's help. God, we pray for your help. We pray that you would lift our eyes on, from things that uh, are fading and passing and that you would uh, pull our white-knuckled fingers out of the things that we hold so dearly to and that you would place our hands firmly on Christ, that we would hope in him, in his kingdom, and in the new Jerusalem that is coming. Pray that this might be our hope today, might be even more tomorrow, and it certainly will be, if you tarry, decades from now. But even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come soon. Come now and make your kingdom known fully on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray all these things for our good and certainly for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.